I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff from the past. And we are back to do just that. So without any further ado, there's been a lot of ado lately. There has. We're cutting the ado. We're getting rid of it. What is today's topic, dear? Uh, today we are visiting, revisiting a series that has not been touched for a few years. <laughs> Surprisingly, I did not know it was that long. Um, but we are continuing our our journey with Disney, specifically our Disney live action movie history. So, so this is the third in the series. Uh huh. We did the the live action films of the fifties and then the sixties. So today, one must presume, is the 1970s. But only half of it. This is going to be a two-parter. <laughs> so I can only assume that the, the output of the studio really increased across the decade. Um, yes, the, the answer yeah, is yes. Yeah, the There's answer a is lot yes. more movies in the okay, 70s than there were in the 60s. That would make sense, because there were, there were a lot of them. Yeah. There, well, and there's some that were just, like, really bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot to say. There's some that I have like nothing to say about other than it happened. It was the 70s after all. It's a weird time. It's a weird time. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to do 1970 to 1975 today. Our next episode will be you and then the next episode will come back to me. Okay. I'm telling you that now so you know you got to write an episode. <laughs> it could just be an, a whole hour and a half on the black hole. <laughs> it basically will be. So, throughout this decade, mm -hmm. uh, Disney made 41 live-action movies, mm -hmm. uh, two hybrids, and four animated movies. Those animated ones were The Aristocats, Robin Hood, The Rescuers, and The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which was actually a collection of shorter animations made into a film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That one, I feel like they kind of cut some corners on. Yeah, but it's also really good. It is. <laughs> We're talking about live action. But I think it's an interesting time of like all the animated movies. Like we got our animals. Mm -hmm. They're very much classics, though nowadays, like no one really like calls these their favorites. A certain demographic. A lot of man. That's a sexy fox. Let's mm -hmm. be honest. That That's what I meant. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> this era of Disney history was also one of transition, let's remember. So Walt died towards the end of the 60s. Roy took over. Mm -hmm. And then in 1971, Walt Disney World in Florida would open. Uh, and then two months later, Roy would die. Mm -hmm. So Don Tatum, Card Walker, and Ron Miller, who was Walt's son-in-law, took over. Card Walker, I'm sure we all remember the Epcot episode ages yep. and ages ago. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that's where we know Card Walker from on this program. Yes. Definitely a changing time in the studio. They also tried to dabble in areas that Disney wasn't normally seen, um, mm -hmm. such as doing more things for teenagers mm -hmm. um, and sci-fi, which we're going to see as well. It took a while to do. It took a while. They were very... Focused in other areas. Not, not to say that's like all they did. They just started Clearly to not, branch no. into those areas. Yeah, yeah. I think if anything, you really start to see more of the teen focus through the late 60s and then like the 70s. It's like, oh, yeah, that one was made for teens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're trying to appeal to different people here. Um, this era is also when they started to hire outside producers for film projects, which was pretty much a never before done thing. Mm -hmm. Time Times are a changing. <laughs> 
1970 started with three films. King of the Grizzlies was the first. Uh, it was an adventure film directed by Ron Kelly, who only worked for Disney this one time, which is a very rare thing. <laughs> Normally you <laughs> work true. for Disney yeah. and you keep working. Just look at the last two episodes in, in this series. The same names pop up again and again. Uh-huh. And we're going to see some of those in this episode, yes. too. Yeah. Ron Kelly just came once and was like, you know, I'm good. <laughs> I guess. I guess <laughs> that was it. Um, just going to check that off the list. Uh, go do something for MGM now, I guess. Maybe it's because this movie took two years to film. <laughs> the film starred a bear. Makes sense. The bear was a 1,300-pound bear named Big Ted. <laughs> uh, and it is based on the book, The Biography of a Grizzly by Ernest Thompson Seaton. Uh, and it is about a man and a bear who meet when the bear's a cub. They befriend each other. It's their path to cross over the years. Now, did another bear play the man? They should have both been bears. They should have both been bears, but no. Okay. No, just one bear. Um, and it was, again, shot for two years throughout much of the Canadian Rockies in Alberta and British Columbia. So my guess is they scared the dude away. Because <laughs> he was like, you know, I really don't want to do that again. Was the long filming period just because of seasonal stuff? They, they only had this window to get these shots and like, uh, well, better wait for next summer. Let's go with yeah. Okay. I don't know. Here's the thing I've learned about movies in the 70s with Disney. Some of them have lots of information about them. Other ones, good luck finding anything. A lot of these aren't even available on Disney+. Plus. Uh-huh. Which is a thing that exists for this, but did not exist for our 50s and 60s. This is true. Episode research. This, this is very true, actually. Which some of the ones that are on Disney+, Plus, you gotta wonder why. <laughs> Why'd you pick that one? I want to see this grizzly man before grizzly man. It's okay. There's other bear movies to pick from that we'll be talking about. Oh, good. There, There's at one point when I was researching this episode that it was like, oh, this would be one of the last like boy and his animal films. And I was like, no, it's not. There's like 500 person and animal film. <laughs> Most of these are dude and animal there's a difference between a grown man and an animal and a young boy and an animal. I, mm, I don't know. Then after that came a movie called The Boatniks. Uh, <laughs> its, its poster catchphrase was man the laugh boats. Man the laugh boats. I hope the rest of the film could, could come up to the, the comic brilliance of the tagline. What a high bar to clear. Man right? the laugh boats. Uh, so it was directed by Norman Togar, who we talked about previously. He directed a lot of Leave it to Beaver and was hired by Walt because of his success working with kids. Mm -hmm. And basically his entire film career was Disney through films through the 60s and 70s until he died in 1979. <laughs> like, that's like all he did. This one is very much one of the ones where you're like, yep, this was for teens. Because the movie is a comedy about a Coast Guardsman in California who falls for a girl and they take down some jewel thieves and there's like surfing and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, very Mary Kay and Ashley vibes. Yeah, yeah. And teens hate jewel thieves. It's one thing I know about teens. 
Satine's got to take him down. There's really nothing to say about this movie. <laughs> uh, but then came uh, The Wild Country, which is an adventure film set in the 1880s uh, about a family who moves to Wyoming and they have their water supply cut off by a powerful rancher and a whole lot of other issues they got to fight. And it starred Vera Mills, who was in Psycho. Uh, <laughs> and Ron Howard, who is credited as Ronnie, this, along with his brother, Clint. This is the time when he was little Ronnie Howard. That yes. This is Mayberry days. Yeah. 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 He's a little older. He was 16. 16. That was 1970. 1970, we got our animal film, our in the past film, our for the teens film. Those are all the kinds of film. That's they, all the films. They were all fine. <laughs> You cannot watch them now easily. Uh, 1971, we got four films. The first one was The Barefoot Executive, starring Kurt Russell. And uh, the film debut of John Ritter as well. Uh, So it was about Waffles, a chimpanzee who could predict if a TV show was going to be a hit or not. And if that sounds familiar, they totally remade it as a Disney Channel original movie in 1995. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Raffles. 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 So then came a movie called Scandalous John, uh, which was about a former gunslinger turned grumpy rancher. Uh, How scandalous was he? <laughs> was he just lying nude on bearskin rugs? Like, what, what sort of scandals are we talking? You have to watch it to find out. I don't want to watch it. It sounds bad. <laughs> So he was fighting a dam that was supposed to flood his land. Now there's a scandal. Uh, and it starred Brian Keith, who was the dad in The Parent Trap, uh-huh, with Haley uh-huh, Mills. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and it was sc- scored by Rod Rod McEwen. I was going to include all of his biography, and then I realized that would be a total episode. I highly suggest you look him up. Okay, what are but some of the highlights? The highlights, Why yes. do I want to learn about Rod? Uh, so he was a singer, songwriter, and poet who produced over 30 collections of poems and around 200 recordings. He is also credited with writing over 1,500 songs. All and work and no play makes Rod a dull boy. Like, his career was insane and intense. And he also, like, worked as a composer and scored multiple films, um, including two which he got Oscar noms for, which includes The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, and then A Boy Named Charlie Brown. (laughs) He sang the opening song for A Boy Named Charlie Brown and wrote all the music for it. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. And what's, like, really interesting is, like, you start to find out, like, what songs he wrote for what artists and, like, who made them famous. All in, like, a really short amount of time. And then, like, he was like, I'm burnt out. I can imagine. And he stopped touring, stopped performing, and just kind of, like, was behind the scenes writing. Sometimes you make two podcasts a week for a few years. And <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what am I doing? I didn't even make anybody's career in the process of all this. So he's one that was very interesting. It was just like, so look him up. He's cool. So the next movie that came Mm -hmm. is one that we watched for you on Disney+. Plus. Oh, no. And this is The Million Dollar Duck. This movie is trash. Uh, It is apparently one of three movies that uh, Gene Siskel walked out on during his professional career. And you know what? (laughs) I can't fault the guy. I really can't. You gotta watch it. It's garbage. But... (laughs) It's but the central performances, the 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 husband and wife, really good acting, 
doing horrible, horrible scripts. Which would explain why, even though it has the worst reviews ever by critics, <laughs> those two people got nominated for Golden Globes. <laughs> they should have won. They had the hardest job in all of Hollywood that year. So, so this movie is about a scientist played by Dean Jones, who was in Herbie, The Love Bug, Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Beethoven one threw me because I recognized him from all the other stuff and I didn't put the dad from Beethoven together with the guy from the movies in the 60s. And I was like, what? But yeah, same guy. You cannot move on from Dean Jones yet. No. Because this is one year after Dean Jones originated the role of Bobby in Company. This is true. <laughs> So when you watch this dude doing his darndest to to work with this abject trash uh, piece of of film, (laughs) this is the exact same man who who just recorded perhaps the greatest piece of narrative music ever written in the English language, Mm -hmm. the best anyone has ever done it. Mm -hmm. The the original cast recording of uh, Being Alive from Company floors me every time. (laughs) And then the next project, the very next thing on his plate (laughs) is this. Well, and let's also remember that his wife, played by Sandy Duncan, who... (laughs) Played Peter Pan in the Broadway revival, yes! who yes! is also amazing. Amazing! Her- and is playing a character as dumb as fucking rocks. Dumber. Rocks would have more sense than this woman. So so the story of this movie is that Dean Jones is a scientist, and he does animal experiments, okay? Mm-hmm. And his experiment... Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. ...on a duck accidentally gets into some really awful fucking applesauce that his wife makes. As she's cooking it, her cookbook keeps, like blowing from the fan and so she's like combining 12 recipes to make applesauce i'm surprised there's any apples in it (laughs) the apples were the first ingredient that's why (laughs) then the duck is exposed to radiation (laughs) and he starts or she starts laying eggs but the yolks are made of pure gold so then the rest of the movie is all about how they're trying to get rich off those gold yolks but also trying to avoid the u.s treasury department it's not good it's not good it's very bad yeah people should watch it though. i also question whether there's animal abuse going on in the filming oh, of it oh you mean when but, they throw a dog into a pool on top of the duck and like they're both swimming but also like attacking each other at the same time and they just let the camera roll yep at the end of 1971 we got bed knobs and broomsticks mm-hmm. one of the two hybrid movies of the 70s uh it is often referred to as disney trying to do mary poppins again it's very obviously Disney trying to do Mary Poppins again. And that's, like, not wrong, but there's no. it's, it's more complicated than that, but it's not wrong. Okay, so production on Bedknobs and Broomsticks actually started before Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're very similar, but... <laughs> I mean, but they are English children coming under the care of of a a magical English lady who's played by a a queen of the Broadway stage. Well, just wait till you find out how much similar it could have been. They they go through (laughs) magical adventures that are represented by them jumping into cartoons and interacting with the cartoons. And then there's a big, the dad for Mary Poppins becomes their adoptive dad in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. It's, It's very transparently trying to recreate the magic, even if the script was in the hopper longer. 
We'll just wait till you you find out some of this, okay? So the original books that is are based off of mm-hmm. were written by Mary Norton. She is actually most known for writing The Borrowers. Ah, okay. So she wrote The Magic Bed Knob in 1943, and Disney purchased the film rights in 1945. She later wrote Bonfires and Broomsticks in 1947, and they were combined into Bed Knobs and Broomsticks in 57. Is that why the movie feels like it's five hours? Probably. <laughs> Still it's... not as long as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The thing I love about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, though, is like, when I was growing up, it was always shown on Easter. Yes. I feel like it was always trying to rival, like, the Ten Commandments movie. For, like, <laughs> which one of us is longer? Like, it was like a competition between them. Because <laughs> that's also a really long movie. Disney uh, started development on Bedknobs and Broomsticks in the 60s while they were still in negotiation for the film rights to Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. The Sherman brothers began working on material for Bedknobs and Broomsticks, like, in the 60s, before that. Now, once they got the go on Mary Poppins, they shelved Bedknobs several times. Yeah. um, To obviously focus on Mary Poppins. And because they were also like, this is kind of similar, so we shouldn't do this at the same time. (laughs) Now, it wasn't until 68 that it got revived, and that was actually, like, really shortly before the Sherman Brothers contract was going to expire. Mm-hmm. They were brought back in to work on it mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. then, basically, you know. Now, there was no production start date at the time, but, you know, they were working on the storyline lots of time spent before then. As, as you mentioned... It's about some British children and a magical lady. So if you aren't familiar, this takes place during World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, The magical lady is an amateur witch who is like in a correspondent school of witchcraft. She's taking mail order magic lessons. Um, And she is forced into taking in three children who have come from London to escape the war in the countryside. And they quickly find out she's a witch. But then she finds out that her correspondence school closes and she's like, oh, dang, we got to go find that Professor Brown who was like in charge of the correspondence school. Uh, So they go to London via a bed Mm -hmm. to track him down, find out he's a quack. He is a con artist, you might say. Con artist. He was did not know that the spells that he was writing out of some books were actually real. And so then they have to go on some animated adventures to try to get an incantation she needs. So they got to go to an animated world. Where they play soccer for approximately 45 minutes. Uh, it drags. And then you find out that they could have just read the kid's storybook. Yeah. Uh, And then a whole lot of other things happen, and they go back to the countryside, and the Nazis show up. (laughs) Uh huh. And And they they... gotta fight the Nazis! With magic! And the thing that, as an adult rewatching this, that I realized is that it. The countryside is not on an island. I always thought they lived on an island. I mean, they do. It's Britain. But no, it's, it's I, a kind of big island. But. I thought that this was like a separate island. And then I realized there's a train. It can't be a separate island. It has to be connected to the rest of England. Uh, so this movie was directed by Robert Stevenson, who directed Mary Poppins and 17 other Disney films. 
uh, including busy guy, busy guy, uh, Johnny Tremaine and Darby O'Gill and other ones that we've talked about. Um, he actually directed four films in the seventies. Now, not to be confused with Robert Louis Stevenson, different, the writer of Treasure Island, very different. Okay. Um. So originally. They apparently considered Julie Andrews for the role of Miss Price. Of course they did. Um, but Why she, wouldn't you? But she turned it down. Of course she would. Why wouldn't she? Because <laughs> she's like, I was just a magical lady. Um, she did apparently reconsider a while later, um, but they had already signed Angela Lansbury on. Mm-hmm. So Julie mm-hmm. Andrews missed out. Magic, she wrote. Yes. Via letters to a correspondence school. I guess magic she read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For um, Mr. Brown, Professor mm-hmm. Brown, Rob Moody was originally um, supposed to play him. Now, he played Fagin in yes! the original Oliver. Ron Moody. He yeah. was almost the fourth doctor. Yeah. Um, but he wanted top billing. And they said, <laughs> no. No, no. We have Angela Lansbury for that. Um, so that's when then he got replaced by David Tomlinson, who was the dad in Mary Poppins. He he was not originally supposed to be in it, mm-hmm. but I guess they got desperate, which is really, I feel like he's the one that really just makes it like, oh, this is the duplicate Mary Poppins. <laughs> I think it's the, the, the huge matte paintings that aren't quite as good. It's the, the uh, animated animal adventures that just really aren't as good. <laughs> Okay, so he wasn't the only one for Mary Poppins that was in this. Uh, it was also the last theatrical film for uh, Reginald Owen, who mm-hmm. died actually in 1972. Mm. Um, he played Admiral Boom in Mary Poppins, and he was the major general in this. <laughs> yes, yes, of the, the like home front volunteer, whatever their name the, is. The senior citizen army. Yeah, all, all the retirees who couldn't go over there, but they march around back here. Which is good, because the Nazis come. Yeah, yeah, they help. God fight the Nazis. I mean, they don't help much, but they certainly take credit. Which is fine, because we can't expose magic. Right, right. So uh, it was filmed mostly in the Disney studios in Burbank, but they did film on some California beaches and a castle in England. Uh, Filming only took 57 days, but the special effects were like half a year. Yeah. Only, surprisingly, it seems like it should be more. (laughs) So the beautiful Briny song, which is the underwater animated sequence that I think is like most known, most famous within the movie... I, the, the final battle with all the, the animated suits of armor and the just the soccer match for how god-awful boring it is. I, just, I feel like whenever you see an image, though, for bed oh, yeah, and yeah. broomsticks, if, if you see put... the family on the... You see them on the bed underwater. Yeah, yeah. That's putting your best foot forward. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's that's why I say I think it's the most well-known. Like, if you know mm-hmm, anything mm-hmm. about bed knobs and broomsticks, you're like, the bed is underwater. Yes. Don't know why, but it is. It's very soggy. Um, so the beautiful Briny was originally written for Mary Poppins and they didn't <laughs> use it. <laughs> and then they go underwater and Mary Poppins returns. It's all full circle. Well, and so due to the animation in the film, uh, the entire movie was storyboarded like they did for Mary Poppins. It's not a surprise. Yeah, yeah, you got to. Uh, the Nabumbu soccer animated sequence. Oof. Um used the sodium vapor process uh, that was developed in the 60s and was used on Mary Poppins. It was used in The Parent Trap, The Absent-Minded Professor. 
Okay, so the sodium vapor process is essentially a different version of, of green screen or chroma key. Yeah. That's, it's the same sort of philosophy, I guess, but it involves using sodium vapor lamps, uh, uh, think like parking lot lamps and that distinctive yellow color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it uses yellow from that light rather than, you know, a, a green sheet or, or a blue screen. Yeah, so that's how you can get two Haley Mills together in a scene, and you can have characters interacting with fish. Yeah, yeah. It's a different way of compositing images to get those sort of effects. And it became very popular with Disney. (laughs) Uh, So originally, we talk about how this film is very long. Yes. It was originally longer. Oh, boy. Uh, Originally, it was about two hours and 20 minutes. Go thank an editor. Um, It was brought down to just under two hours before its premiere. And this led to three songs being removed entirely. And the Portobello Road sequence was cut down two thirds. That's what? It's the longest freaking sequence ever. It it already feels like it's 10, 15 minutes on its own. That's one third of it? That's one third of it, apparently. All right. Okay. So this, the Portobello Road sequence... The kids go to a flea market and they see some cool stuff and some shady stuff. And there's a lot of cultural dancing. There's so much cultural dancing. Oh, my God. And it never, ever stops. Stop. It's so long. It's so long. Can you imagine if that was the full sequence? It was three times as long. So, uh, in 1996, for the 25th anniversary, a restoration happened to recover uh, what was deleted. Now, most of the footage was found, though segments of the Portobello Road sequence had to be reconstructed from original work prints um, that they then, like, did digital recolorization on. They were also not able to recover the footage of Angela Lansbury's song, A Step in the Right Direction. So, they um, had to link the music track to existing stills. And all this work actually led to the discovery of several songs that, like, never made it to the film. They Um, they never even got recorded. Or at least, like, never scored. Um, So they actually found uh, Nobody's Problem, which Lansbury had made a demo for, Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. it was just to a solo piano. Right. They worked on the reconstruction, and some of the spoken tracks had to be redubbed because they couldn't recover (laughs) them. Uh, so Angela Lansbury and um, McDowell, who's one of the kids, uh, redubbed their own parts, but then they had stand-ins for other ones. I can't imagine one of the kids sounding the same as they did 25 years earlier. Um, mm. uh, Tomlinson, uh, who played Brown, uh, was actually in bad health at the time, so he oh. couldn't do his. Jeff Bennett did his parts. Um, Jeff Bennett has like a crazy, insane, like voice acting career Mm -hmm. where you have definitely seen at least four things he's done. (laughs) He was Johnny Bravo. Mm -hmm. So Bedknobs and Broomsticks was the last film to be released before uh, Roy died. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually died like one week later. Angela Lansbury murdered Roy Disney. (laughs) No. Okay, the soccer sequence is what did him in. Uh, So as I mentioned, after his death, Don Tatum would become the chairman and CEO, Card Walker became president, and Ron Miller uh, would step into the executive producer role for the 70s. In 1972, we Mm -hmm. got The Biscuit Eater. 
Oh. Which we also watched. Oh. And The Biscuit Eater is just a weird freaking movie. It's a very traditional boy and his animal, in this case a dog. Yeah, yeah. So deep in the old woods... There is a guy who trains well, okay. hunting dogs. Let's talk about the old woods real quick. Sure. Because my question is, when the hell does this movie take place? And, and the- you know what? Other people question this too. A lot of the critic like commentary of this film is, when did it take place? No one knows. No one understands. Because it's like, it doesn't seem like the 70s, but there's really no time put to it. The big question people want answered is, is the neighbor boy owned by anyone in this movie? Yeah, it's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) The only hint we have to the time period is that automobiles and gas stations exist. It's really weird. (laughs) It's very, very... Like, if you would have just gotten rid of the cars and changed the costumes, you'd very much be questioning that. But, so, like, this kid and the boy next door, like, take in... The dog that's failed his dad's, like, bird, dog birding training. Yeah, the the dad of the family, his job is to train dogs to be bird dogs for for hunters. Yes, and this dog failed. And they name him Moreover. Why? I don't freaking know. It's from the Bible. They pick out a word at random from the Bible and the dog is named Moreover. And the neighbor's mom's like, are you sure? (laughs) Are are you sure? Well, when I said pick out something from the Bible, I did mean a name. Moreover is a name. It is now. This Uh, is the level this movie works at. This sort of wholesome hijink. And this dog is supposed to be untrainable because he eats eggs and he steals biscuits. And he gets into trouble, and the boys are like, no, we're going to train him. So they do can train do train him, and then he, like, gets so good that they take him to go compete against the other bird dogs. But, like, they're worried the boy's dad is going to lose his job if moreover wins. Yeah. So they, yeah. like, ruin it. So... <laughs> So they, they throw the competition by breaking the dog's heart. By calling him a biscuit eater. They insult him and he loses like all of motivation to continue and to respond to commands. And this, to eat food. It's a very emotionally fragile dog they've, they've got themselves. <laughs> this movie's trash. It's so, such trash. It's such trash. Uh, so then, um, came Now You See Him, Now You Don't, which is the sequel to The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, also starring Kurt Russell. Kurt mm-hmm. Russell does a lot of Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was followed by The Strongest Man in the World in 1975, which, um, both of these are stories of college science experiments going wrong, turning someone invisible or strong, very much, I think, trying to appeal to those teens mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we're going to college now. Teens love to be invisible. That one is true, actually. <laughs> so then came Napoleon and Samantha. Uh, this is a story about a boy who adopts an old lion with his grandfather from a clown. <laughs> and his grandfather dies, so he runs off with the lion and a rooster and his friend, to try and find a goat herder he knows in the mountains as he doesn't want to go to an orphanage. This movie <laughs> was written by a speak and say. <laughs> you pull the little handle and it lands on goat. Like, okay, there's a goat in the movie now. I just like roll the dice, pulled some words from a hat. Like, yep, that's what we're going with. Their market research was asking a toddler some of their favorite animals. Roosters! 
Lion. Okay, it's about a lion. That's number one. Put the lion on the poster. So this movie uh, starred Johnny Whitaker, who's the kid from A Biscuit Eater. <laughs> uh, and was Jodie Foster's movie debut. Oh. She played she, the rooster. She was the friend who ran away with him. Ah, the lion, yes. The history of this movie is that apparently she was mauled by the stand-in lion on set one day. Not even the real lion. Not even the main <laughs> lion had the respect to maul her. Oh. The stand-in lion. And she apparently still has scars from the incident today and is not very fond of cats. <laughs> Can't blame her. You know, when you're seven and you get mauled by a freaking lion, you're going to be a little scarred. Might have had the same animal handler as uh, the million dollar duck. I'm just going to throw this this lion at the children and see what happens. Uh, there's my mistake. Kid wasn't in the pool. That's what makes all the difference. I, I tried to find out like more on that. But literally, the only thing you can find is just, like, her stating that this happened in an interview years ago. Well, the lion never got to tell his side of the story, now did he? That's the Hollywood press, I tell you what. Uh, so that was followed by Run, Cougar, Run. Uh, that's about a cougar raising its three cubs and trying not to be hunted. And then Snowball Express. What are some of the biggest cats we can make a movie about? I, I think they're running out of them. <laughs> Uh, so Snowball Express, we watched. We uh, this was definitely a teen movie. It is about an attorney who inherits a hotel in a fictional ski town that's not actually, like, hopping. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's not what he thinks it is. It's a fixer-upper and a half, yeah. Yeah. You can imagine everything that happens in this movie from that point on. It, it starred everyone in the 70s. Like, that was in the 70s. It's it had not, Dean Jones. Dean Jones is the dad. He's it always the dad. It had Nancy Olsen, who was the maid in Pollyanna. Yep. It has Johnny Whitaker. It has the, the bad guy from uh, uh, The Love Bug back as the bad guy in this. It has Harry Morgan from MASH, which is when I found out that you've never watched MASH, so you didn't know who he was. I was born in 1988. No, I didn't watch MASH. I was born in 1988. That's what everyone watched after 9 p.m. That's not true. And That's demonstrably untrue. <laughs> they would, like, show, like, two hours of MASH after the news. <laughs> so I'm just... This one I thought, like, I guess, like, the one interesting fact I have about this one <laughs> is that the amount of matte paintings and what is a matte painting in that movie <laughs> is very interesting. I found a site that just had a collection of matte paintings, and I was like, I thought that was actually a house. <laughs> and that's a matte painting. They used all the white paint that, that they had on the lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There are just a lot of really trash movies here. So then next came The World's Greatest Athlete in uh -huh. 1973. We're only at 1973. Uh, and it's about a Tarzan-like kid who was recruited to run college track. Uh -huh. I'm going to guess he's played by Kurt Russell. Uh, no. What? It, it did not star Kurt Russell. I don't remember who it starred. But it did have John Amos as the coach who was in the West Wing. Uh -huh. He was Admiral Percy Fitzwallis. Oh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. Also, he was in Good Times and Roots. That's what people watched at 9 p.m. in the 90s. The West Wing? Yes. On Wednesdays they did. Uh, the, the guy who did play the athlete very much looked like Fabio. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. know that. His name was, uh, John Michael Vincent. He was in a lot of things. 
that I don't know. Oh, he's he was one of the stars of Airwolf. Yeah, heard of that. <laughs> I know what that is. Uh, so then uh, came Charlie and the Angel, which uh, was a 1920 Prussian era Midwestern film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very late 20s if it's Depression era. <laughs> Like, the last few months of the 20s. So it was one of the final uh, film appearances uh, and last Disney film for Fred McMurray, uh, who was in the absent-minded professor, Shaggy Dog. In the late 70s, he would actually be diagnosed with throat cancer, which would reappear in the 80s. Then he would have a stroke and leukemia, and just, it went all downhill until he passed away in 91. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is another one where you're just like, what were they thinking? (laughs) Because... Charlie Appleby is a Charlie Appleby. a frugal hardware store owner in the Midwest, and his relationship with his children is rough. They want to go to the Chicago World's Fair. Okay, so it's set in 1933 or 34. But apparently also the 20s Depression. Sure. Who knows? Uh, but he wants to save money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So his one son works for a junkyard owned by a bootlegger, and his daughter elopes with Kurt Russell, like you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's just all they're they're doing things he doesn't approve of. Uh, and so Harry Morgan from MASH uh, <laughs> appears as an angel uh-huh. and is like, hey, you're going to die soon. Charlie Appleby becomes religious. This script <laughs> is an improv game that went on too long. Becomes religious, sells his business, and tries to win over his family. Why? Why, Disney? <laughs> Why? I don't know why they're making the films they make. You know what else you can see that year? What? The Exorcist. Oh. You can see Live and Let Die. There's, there's a fun <laughs> James Bond for you. It's the racist one, but it's fun. That is like when when you start to think about some of these movies in comparison to other things that were out at the same time. You're like, oh, and you didn't do well. Like, American Graffiti just came out. Who's this George Lucas kid? I bet he's got a bright future out of him. Uh Uh-huh. Harrison Ford, what a handsome young man he is. Um, so then uh, came a movie called One Little Indian, then a movie called Super Dad, then Herbie Rides Again. We're not even going to talk about those. (laughs) Followed up by The Bears and I in 1974, which is on Disney Plus, and we did watch for you. Oh boy, what a mistake. It is about a Vietnam vet who goes to deliver the effects of his fallen friend to his friend's father, who is the chief of a tribe in a mountain location. Yes. Um, so he ends up running a cabin and adopts three orphaned bear cubs who he raises till they're old enough to fend for himself. And the whole time the tribe's like, don't adopt bear cubs. What the hell? It's very bad. It's bad for the bears. It's bad for you. It's against our cultural ways for you to do this. Um, and then the tribe is also facing eviction from the government as they want to build a national park. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yet somehow it's nothing. It's a nothing movie. And so this movie stars Patrick Wayne, son of John Wayne. Mm -hmm. One of the other actors, Michael Ansara, um, was actually a Lebanese actor. But like, (laughs) Uh uh basically... whatever. Put some feathers on him. He was cast as every ethnic background you could think of. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
Although I, I think our demographic would recognize him best as a white person, an incredibly white person, Mr. Freeze in Batman the Animated Series. Uh-huh. Actually kind of a blue person. Yeah. <laughs> a very interesting career path there. The the chief of the tribe mm-hmm. was played by Chief Dan George. Mm-hmm. Who uh was a chief of the was chief of the Selwatuth uh, nation in British Columbia, Canada from 1951 to 1963. So typecasting, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but it's like casting, background? It's like casting Ken Jeong as a doctor that makes jokes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Chief Dan George was got into acting very late in life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? So he worked numerous various jobs was chief, and then it wasn't until he was 60 that he got his first acting job in a CBS series. Hmm. Um, and then between 1960 and 1981, he has 32 credits uh-huh. that he did, um, which included two for Disney. His biggest thing was in 1970, at the age of 71, so a few years before this, he received several nominations and wins for Best Supporting Actor in his role in Little Big Man. Ah, uh uh-huh. But he also uh, wrote poetry, and uh, much of his work was published under two titles, My Heart Soars and My Heart and my spirit source in 1967 at the city of Vancouver celebration for the Canadian centennial. He performed Lament for Confederation, um, which was about indigenous rights and what Canada's centennial meant for First Nations people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is, is credited with stirring a lot of indigenous rights throughout Canada mm-hmm. after this. And I actually found like the original recording, so we'll link that. It's really Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. And so he passed away in 1981 at 82. Um, but I just think it's like really interesting. Like, whoa, fast career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another note about Michael Ansara. Uh, one of the many uh, uh, ethnicities he played, uh, Klingon. Yes, I forgot. He was a Klingon. He's one of the few um, people who, like, played his Klingon character multiple times in multiple yes. different things. He originated a character. He, he was Commander Kang in the original series, then mm-hmm. reprised the role in both Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Which is cool. <laughs> so then in 1974, we got The Castaway Cowboy, which for some reason we also watched for you. Why? I don't know, but it's awful. This episode has been in the works for a while, so every once in a while we we would just do some primary research, you might say, and they're all bad. The ones we're talking about so far, there's one that we're not going to talk about till part two. That's great. The only good ones we're going to talk about are in part two. <laughs> yep. Uh, so the Castaway Cowboy is about a Texas rancher played by James Garner, who was crimped into being a sailor and jumped ship. He ends up being washed ashore in Hawaii in, like, the late 1800s. <laughs> time is fluid. She, There's no such thing as time. The lady looks like she's from Little House on the Prairie. Yes. The lady is played by Vera Mills, mm-hmm. um, who we've seen before. Uh, and she's trying uh, to be a farmer. But he's like, hey, there's wild cattle. Maybe you should, like, 
herd cattle and trains the Hawaiian farmhands to become ranchers. Which is ungodly racist. Uh-huh. Like, the way they present the, these ranch hands, or, or would-be ranch hands, they're just so childish. They're, they're like little Christmas elves. They're whimsical little babies that just love to, to frolic and play and, and don't understand the meaning of work. They're such simple uh, uh, creatures of paradise. And somehow they don't know how to deal with the wild cattle. It's, in the land that they've lived on for generations. It's absolutely infantilizing. It's very it's uncomfortable. freaking awful! I mean, I shouldn't be surprised this stuff is still in the 70s, but it seems very like, I expected this from the 50s. <laughs> what, have we not moved past this? At least a little bit. Not in this studio, we haven't. New um, Hollywood is happening around them, and they're just not doing it. <laughs> Scorsese is working right now. Like It's so bizarre and with that we're gonna take a little break and we're gonna come back and talk about some more things welcome back everybody hello before the break we were talking about many many films that lacked any sense of creative ambition whatsoever. And now we're going to talk about one that had a lot of creative ambition. Finally. The Island at the Top of the World. Mm-hmm. An adventure film set in 1907 about a British aristocrat who arranges an expedition to the Arctic to search for his lost son, yes. who was on a whaling expedition to a fabled island where whales go to die mm-hmm. and inhabited by a lost population of Norsemen. Well, they don't know that at the time. They find out when they get there. Yes. They yeah. they knew about it being where whales go to die, but not about the lost population. So it is based on a 1961 novel called The Lost Ones by Ian Cameron. Uh, the biggest change we saw from the book to the movie was that the book was sent set in 1960. Uh-huh. And the movie was set in 1701, or 17, in 1907. Ah. An airship was added. Yeah, they, they really Jules Verne it up, honestly. Oh my god, it's so, so Jules Verne-y. I mean, it's essentially uh, the lost world, but instead of dinosaurs, it's Vikings. Yes. Yeah. It's like the lost world meets 20,000 leagues. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the film featured the Hyperion, which was a 200-foot-long, semi-rigid dirigible. You taught me all about dirigibles. I did. On a much earlier episode. You can go back and listen to that one. That was actually a pretty good one. I like that it's one. It's on the Wingfoot Air Disaster. That's the yes, one we're talking about. Of course it's about a disaster. The Hyperion was designed by Peter Ellenshaw, one of the main big-name designers of the time for Disney. Mm-hmm. So much of the matte paintings that um, happened during this era were done by him. And they are incredible in this. It is insane. We actually have a um, blog I found that um, is just a lot of matte painting images. Like the whole thing is just dedicated to matte paintings. Mm-hmm. So we will link that. It's really amazing. His work is really amazing. They have wonderful posts on this film and other films we're going to talk about. This is maybe the only movie where I was just really looking forward to establishing shots. Yeah. <laughs> there, it was just insane. Um, 
and like the amount of images and you have matte paintings for the snowball express oh it's a little cottage thing in snow yeah yeah but then you have like will whales go to die the 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 meeting house where they have their trial yes yeah Oh, it's intense and cool. So the, the interior and the exterior, both incredible. So this uh, design of the Hyperion, um, apparently they boasted that the Goodyear blimp pilots were consulted on the design and deemed it theoretically airworthy. <laughs> the- theoretically. Theoretically. Um, so the Hyperion was actually planned to be part of an attraction at a new land called Discovery Bay at Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the film didn't do very well, so it didn't get built. Um, but the attraction was supposed to have a life-size replica of the Hyperion protruding from um, like a hangar's open door. And the hangar would have a ride that visitors could climb aboard like the Hyperion and get like an aerial adventure. Mm, kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. pre-Soren-esque, but without sure. the aspects of Soren. <laughs> so this was uh, planned to actually use like real film and a moving platform. It was about two decades before virtual reality rides became like a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a little before its time and concept. So this is like anticipating Star Tours in, in yeah. a way. Yeah. So it was planned to the point that they had postcards with the concept art being sold at Disneyland. (laughs) Yeah, and then the whole Discovery Bay expansion just fell through for a number of reasons. Yes. It's one of the big what-ifs of of park fans, I think. Yes. Um, So Disneyland Paris does have a life-size Hyperion airship as as part of the Videopolis Theater and Cafe Complex. Because their Tomorrowland is very Jules Verne. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And it fits right in. Yeah. Um, At the time of construction in 1992, it was considered the largest prop ever at any Disney theme park. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, The Hyperion is also seen in an episode of the original DuckTales. (laughs) FYI. Uh, So as I mentioned, uh, the movie did not do very well, but it did get an Oscar nom for best art direction because as we said, it was amazing. Did Looking. they did they give a special Oscar nomination to the dog? It was a they, there's a good I, dog in it. You love Josephine. The dog is good. The the fussy tiny French man who has the dog is yes. very good. Yes. So it starred uh, Sir Donald Sinden as the most indifferent. Oh yes. Desperate father. This man was so like oh well. He, he is desperate to save his son and cares nothing for anybody's thoughts or feelings. He kidnaps oh, a lot of people he does. over the course of this film. He does. And does not understand when people tell him that's wrong. Uh, it also starred uh, David Hartman in one of his eight credits shortly <laughs> before he became the first host of ABC's Good Morning America, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. he then did for like decades. Right. It also uh, co-starred Mako yes. uh, in the role of Umiak. Uh, he was an Inuit who accidentally gets kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, uh, accidentally, sure. Taken on the voyage and disappears and reappears throughout the whole movie. Right. He, ever, as soon as you start wondering, where did he go? Is he alive? Yes, he is alive. He, then, he, he appears. He brings the cavalry. He is the cavalry. Mako is very extensive film career. Yes, um, yes. He, he was like Oscar nominated before this. Yes. 
Um, so he actually, he started his film career in 1959. Um, and in 1966, he was nominated for an Oscar and Golden Globe for his role in The Sand Pebbles, which was an American war film. And he had like a continuous career until um, he passed away in 2006 at the age of 72. Still you, working. You have seen him in something. You have. Either as an actor or a voice actor. He was the narrator in Dexter's Laboratory. He was in Samurai Jack. <laughs> he was he Aku, was, yeah. Uh, the Conan the Barbarian and Destroyer movies. He was in Robocop 3. He was in Pearl Harbor. If you like obscure WB shows like me, he was in Black Sash. <laughs> that lasted not even a whole season. <laughs> I think... Roughly 40 to 80% of our audience is screaming, waiting for oh, you to mention. Oh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Which the, is a show you would love. And the voice of uh, Splinter in TMNT. No, mostly the Avatar thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But yes, Avatar The Last Airbender, he was extensively in. Oh, man. He, he died in the middle of the production and like his memorial episode mm-hmm. that they squeezed in. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. When looking at him, though, what... I also found interesting was like his family. Oh. If you did you know anything about his family? No, I've just been waiting to squeeze in a word about him in the uh, uh, original Broadway cast of. We're gonna get there. Okay. We're gonna pause on his family, his origin story. Okay. Okay. He was born in Japan in uh-huh. 1933. Now his parents were artists. Mm-hmm. Um, were either of them Inuit? No. <laughs> now, uh, his parents painted, painted farmers and laborers and were part of exhibitions that opposed the rise of Japanese militarism. Mm-hmm. They were both arrested by the Toko, like the secret police, mm-hmm. uh, for their involvement in anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-military stances. And while they were imprisoned, they were tortured. It, they were only released after signing confessions in which they disavowed uh, their political activity. Now, he was born a year later, 1933, as I said. Um, In 1939, his parents got visas to travel to the U.S. under the pretext that they were going to San Francisco for the World's Fair, they were going Mm -hmm, to write, mm -hmm. um, and then they'd come back. And they left uh, Mako with his grandparents and went into exile in New York City. This was to avoid um, his father's conscription into the Japanese army. While they were there, they were faced with, like, dire poverty. They made money by painting accessories for department stores and then were eventually commissioned to do artwork for the Japanese American Review and some other publications, some newspapers. Uh This is when they took on pseudonyms of Taro and Mitsu Tashima. Um, And this was to protect their family back in Japan. Right, right. So in 1943, uh, Taro would write The New Sun and then later Horizon is Calling, which is graphic memoirs of their experience while being imprisoned in Japan and like their life afterwards. Mm -hmm. It was like widely and positively reviewed Though it did not sell well. Um, but it was actually taken... <laughs> it's not really a page turner. No. It's not a feel-good kind of book. Um, but it was taken up by the Office of War um, as, like, a tool against Japan. Ah, uh-huh. So after Pearl Harbor, um, they were both hired by the Office of Strategic Service. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mitsu went to San Francisco, where 
you know, she faced incredible racism because this is the time of, like, Japanese internment. Right, right. But she was put there uh, to produce and narrate radio broadcasts urging women in Japan to commit sabotage to stop Japan's military machine. There, there is a, a tragic and bitter irony in uh, a lifetime's work to resist one nation's uh, uh, militarism only to serve a different nation's militarism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Taro apparently went to India on intelligent missions during this and would later illustrate like handbills in Japanese for you know, airdrops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, after the war, they had no idea if they could remain in the U.S. Huh. They were like, okay, are we going to be sent back to Japan, a place that's not too happy with us? (laughs) Um, But there was a bill enacted by Congress in 1948 that permitted them to become permanent residents. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it also granted them permission uh, to get Mako and for him to come to the U.S. Now, that's really great, but they actually had no idea if he or his grandparents were still alive. Oh, oh. Uh, because apparently they had seen uh, newsreels in films of bombing raids in the place where they were staying. Like, they right. literally right. saw the building, not mm-hmm. just the town, but, like, the building that they, like, were last known to be in, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. explode. Um, so it wouldn't be until he was uh, 12 that they were finally reunited and mm. he was able to come to the U.S., they also had had another child, Momo, in 1949. Um, she is actually also an actress. Oh. So through the 50s and 60s, um, his father would write and illustrate on his own and also with uh, his wife. And they there were seven children's books mm-hmm. that were published um, that are quite well known. Crowboy uh, won the Children's Book Award in 1955. Oh, congratulations, Crowboy. <laughs> I knew you had it in him. Um, and then there was also Umbrella and Seashore, which were runners up for the for the Caldecott Medal and were later designated honor books. Ah. Um, if you were to see the covers, you would probably recognize them. <laughs> like, I didn't recognize the names, but as soon as I saw the pictures, I was like, I've totally seen those. Right, right, right. They also founded um, an art institute in L.A. They would separate, and Mitsu would... Um, Focus on activism uh-huh, for uh-huh. years to come. I just thought that was like an interesting, like, whoa, who knew that? Okay. So. Um, I imagine he did. I mean, he did eventually. Um, going back to Mako, uh, mm-hmm. he enlisted into the military in the 1950s. And that's where he actually found out his like theatrical talent. Ah, uh-huh. um, um, in addition to film and tv he was very involved with theater which Mm -hmm. is something i know you're wanting to get to soon um in 1965 um frustrated with the like lack of you know roles for asian americans uh he and six others formed the east west players which was one of the earliest asian american theater organizations Mm -hmm. um and it provided a place to train and perform and bring up uh asian american playwrights Mm mm-hmm during the 1981 season mm-hmm. of the theater, which was at the same time as hearings on the about the commission on wartime relocation and internment of civilians, mm-hmm. uh, they exclusively showed plays about Japanese American incarceration. Ah, uh-huh. 
So very much like a political yeah, season yeah, yeah. for them. Shortly after the island on the top of the world, he would create the role of reciter in the 1976 Stephen Sondheim Broadway musical. Yes. What's it called? Do you want to say what's called? You're so excited. It's called Pacific Overtures. Yeah. And we've already kind of done an episode based on it. Yeah. Or or based on the Perry expedition that is also the basis of that musical. Yes. Yeah. Do you have have anything else you want to say? He's really good in it. Yeah. He's like really good at it. Explains why he was nominated for a Tony. Also an early performance of Getty Watanabe. Uh, best known as Long Duck Dong in Sixteen Candles. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, he was nominated for a Tony for it. One of the other people nominated that lost as well were apparently like really pissed that they lost to George Rose in My Fair Lady. They're like, we lost to a revival. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I mean, My Fair Lady's really good though. <laughs> Yeah, but still. Still, still. There's something different about originating a character or when the revival isn't different enough that it could almost be considered. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those revivals are just so similar. You're thinking about Cabaret, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. That's one of those things where those are such incredibly different performances mm-hmm. of a character mm-hmm. that I'm not mad about it. <laughs> We already talked about a couple of the highlights of the film that I was going to bring up, which was the matte paintings. Yep. They were awesome. We talked about Josephine, the dog. Adorable. She jumps into baskets on cue. The one thing we didn't talk about was the killer whales. The killer whales are pretty okay, actually. But, like, the blood squirting from the killer whales. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The killer whale attack scene, specifically. If you watch nothing else in this movie, you need to watch that scene. Like, this is a very middling movie. It's fine, but it is a spectacle. Oh my god. Like, it is absolutely elevated by by its visuals. Yes. The killer whale attack scene thing is just so, like, out of left field. You're like, oh my (laughs) god, they went there. Why did they go there? Why? They're scary. They're very scary. There's a lot of blood. There's more blood than I've ever seen in any Disney film. (laughs) Uh, So in 1975, we got Escape to Witch Mountain. Finally, a movie you like. I like Escape to Witch Mountain. I was a big fan of Escape to Witch Mountain and Return to Witch Mountain. And um, so this movie was actually well-received. Amazing. Uh, For the first time. So well-received, it led to a sequel in 1978 which was Return to Witch Mountain, which I already mentioned. These also had multiple remakes since. (laughs) Of course. Multiples. The Rock is in one of them. Yes. So it is based on the 1968 novel by Alexander H. Key, uh, who actually attended the School of the Art Institute here in Chicago in the 1920s. Um, He was actually nationally known as an illustrator before he became an author. Both of these films were directed by John Hugh, who is known for suspense films of the 70s and 80s. Yes, but not John Hughes. No, John Hugh. Very, very different. It's an important S. These movies focus on a brother and sister pair, Tony and Tia, 
who are aliens with powers. Yes. And they don't really remember their past, but no. slowly they realize they have to escape to Witch Mountain while being pursued by a millionaire who wants them for their abilities. And then in return to Witch Mountain, the sequel, it's when the kids need a vacation from space and they come back to Earth and everything goes bad. But more on that next Later. part, I guess. So Tia is played by Kim Richards, who Uh is the aunt of Nikki and Paris Hilton, (laughs) also known for being part of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Well, there you go. Uh, (laughs) If you've ever wanted a where are they now, you can just tune in. Tony was played by Ike Eisenman, who was also in The Fantastic Journey. Uh, He voiced a green giant commercial character. But like not the, the green giant? Not the jolly green giant, just a green giant? Like, I think it was like the baby giant oh, or something. Oh, the baby. Yeah. Uh, and he was also in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Ah, did he play Khan? No. Oh, okay. Uh, in 2002, he directed a short comedy film that combined the Blair Witch Project and Escape to Witch Mountain called The Blair Witch Mountain Project. Uh, and it was apparently about a journalist trying to track down Tia and Tony, and it starred both of them. Okay. <laughs> okay, but it's been like 30 years, dude. You can move on. <laughs> I get it, but like, come on now. We are going to jump ahead and talk about Return to Witch Mountain a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, just because the fact that it had Betty Davis and Christopher Lee, I think, is often overlooked. That's true. Um, it would also actually be the last film of Jack Sue, who passed away from cancer the January after it came out. Oh. Jack Sue was most known for being in the New York police sitcom Barney Miller. Mm-hmm. He was in that for like over 100 episodes. <laughs> he actually had a really interesting career too. So uh, he was born Goro Suzuki on a ship traveling from the U.S. to Japan in 1917. Um, Mm, His mm -hmm, parents mm -hmm. lived in Oakland, California, but they wanted him to be born in Japan. So they sent, like, okay, go and go on a ship so that way we're in Japan when you're born. But they didn't make it in time. (laughs) So he grew up in California. He graduated from UC Berkeley, um, lived in Oakland until the U.S. government ordered internment of Japanese Americans. Sure, yeah. Um, And he was sent to the Topaz War Relocation Center in Utah. Until 1945, after he worked the nightclub uh, circuit as a stand-up, um, and while in the circuit, he would becomes with he would become friends with the future Barney Miller producer uh, Danny Arnold. Ah, that's how he got the Barney Miller job. Um, but his his big break came uh, in 1958 when he was cast in the Broadway musical hit Flower Drum Song. Yes, yes. That is landmark history Uh right there, Flower Drum Song. Uh, He was discovered by the director at a San Francisco nightclub, and that director was Gene Kelly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then another interesting thing for him is that in uh, 1965, he also joined Motown Records as one of the first non-black artists. Mm-hmm. Um, he recorded a slow ballad version of For Once in My Life and was the first male singer to do so. Uh-huh. It was never released and shelved <laughs> in the Motown archives. That song would later be made famous by Stevie Wonder. Right, right. Yeah. So continuing the Escape to Witch Mountain-like sure, history. Sure, sure. In 1982, Disney made a made-for-TV movie that was another sequel to Escape to Witch Mountain called Beyond Witch Mountain. Next Mountain Over. I honestly 
honestly don't know if I ever saw this. Warlock Glenn. If I did, I'm not sure I knew it was supposed to be a sequel. <laughs> so Eddie Elbert, who who played like the random stranger man that's oh. nice to them. Okay. They sort of adopts them, but then yeah. doesn't. Let's them go to space. Yeah. He he returned to play his part, but Tony and Tia, you know, didn't because they were old. Um, <laughs> Tracy Gold from The Growing Pains was in it. Uh-huh. And it aired as an episode of Walt Disney. Right, right. Now, it ignores and contradicts, like, everything that happens in Return to Witch Mountain. So it's non-canonical. And some the, of the timeline branches. Yes! Very strange. Like, okay, it's a sequel, but not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a redo. Uh, so after that came the Apple Dumpling Gang in 1975. <laughs> this is also in the Witch Mountain series? Nope. Okay. Moving on. We're moving on. Away from West Mountain. Next movie, Apple Dumpling Gang. Mm-hmm. Comedy Western by Norman Tokar. I don't know. We talked about him earlier. Uh, it is based on a novel of the same name from 1971. Somebody if- wrote a book about an Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> You could write books about anything in the 70s. It doesn't matter. And you, you only got to wait like three years for them to become a movie, apparently. Wow. Just flying off the <laughs> shelves. So this this is about a gambler who's tricked into taking care of a group of orphans, and they eventually strike gold. Okay. Again, again, this is an improv scene that just went on a few too many beats. <laughs> so the, the writer of this book actually wrote about 75 published novels. <laughs> and this is one of two movies. Just hitting the bookstore <laughs> with a shotgun. Just go. This is one of two movies that was made mm-hmm. of his books. The other was uh, Baker's Hawk, which was not made by Disney. Was about a hawk. Okay. But the Apple Dumpling Gang was the first film to feature the comedy duo Don Knotts and Tim Conway. Who would appear in other things. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so Barney Fife and Dorf. Uh-huh. Okay, cool, cool. It was a hit, and we got a sequel in 1979 called The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides oh. Again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and this would actually be one of the first Disney movies that would be released to video cassette in 1980. <laughs> All the places to start, The Apple Dumpling Gang. I, I hope it had the big white plastic... Vacuum seal clamshell <laughs> case. So we've had we have Don Knotts now. Mm-hmm. We had Ronnie Howard earlier. Mm-hmm. Those are not the only Andy Griffith show connections we have in these seventies films. No, Island at the Top of the World and the Bear and Bears and I were both written by John Whedon, uh. the grandfather of Joss Whedon, who also wrote a lot of Andy Griffith show episodes, yeah. many of which are morally reprehensible. Yeah. Including, uh, when this comes out, I believe it will be the most recent uh, episode uh, talked about on the Breaking Mayberry podcast. And I'm a guest on it. Mm-hmm. Opie and his merry men. And we lost our minds talking about this yeah. thing. This piece of work. Absolute piece of work from John Whedon. You should check that out. You should. So we're, we're coming to the end. Uh, the last of the 1975 movies. One of our dinosaurs is missing. Oh, no. Which is a comedy set in the 1920s about the theft of a dinosaur skeleton based on the 1970s novel The Great Dinosaur Robbery Mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. David Forrest, which is actually a pen name. It was two dudes. Same as The Expanse. That's okay. I'm honestly disappointed that the dinosaur is just stolen because Uh I thought it would have been a lot cooler 
if the dinosaur just came to life and left. Uh-huh. And it was uh-huh. all like a Godzilla-ish movie, but yeah. with the dinosaur getting loose. But yeah. no. No. So in this, the the reason the dinosaur gets stolen is that there is a microfilm that's hidden within the display. Oh. And some Chinese spies want it. Oh. And some nannies get in the way. <gasps> the nannies. <laughs> um, so the, the writers, under the pen name David Forrest, were apparently not very happy with this film, as <laughs> the book they wrote was geared towards an adult audience. Apparently, actually, they did actually like a crazy amount of research on like New York, the American Museum of Natural History, the p- police department in the area. Like Graphic these- depictions of sex. <laughs> Intravenous drug use every other chapter. Apparently more on like crime and like spies and like it was supposed to be taken seriously, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they felt that it was very disregarded and dumbed down. For children. Yeah, I'm, I have not seen this movie, but I'm imagining there are people in, like, black domino masks, and oh, they, yeah. they peek around the corner oh, and yeah. a little marimba plays. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would, would be amazing, though, if the novel actually did have sex and drugs and, like, like How? okay, Disney, you can pay us for this, but this doesn't seem like your normal thing. My contract <laughs> stipulates you have to include the scene where an eight-year-old gets shot dead. <laughs> so the last movie of 1975 was called Ride a Wild Pony, and it is also based on another novel mm-hmm. called A Sporting Proposition by James Aldridge. This sounds like an, an indecent proposal, but on a house farm. So listen to the story of this one. This one's so good. It is the story... Of a man named Brady. Of a small Australian town between World War I and World War II. Sometime within there. And it is the battle of two kids. A poor farm boy who needs a horse to ride seven miles to school. Uh-huh. And a wealthy girl who had polo, polio and needs a cart and a pony to get around. And how they both own the same horse. So they got a timeshare on this horse. They got to steal the horse away from each other. Uh-huh. It's all about horse thievery. Can we set up a schedule, maybe? Does this? Does the girl also go to school? We can kill two birds with one shared horse. I was reading this, and I'm like, it's literally about two kids in awful situations. Also, if she's so wealthy, why can't horse. they get another freaking horse? Get a backup horse. She can have five horses. This is my horse Monday. This is my horse Tuesday. This is my horse Buttercup. She didn't like being called Wednesday. The the screenplay was written by uh, Rosemary Ann Sisson. She was a drama critic for the Stratford Herald. She actually became a playwright after seeing Richard Burton's performance of Prince Hal in Henry V. Mm -hmm. She became really interested in the affair of Catherine and Sir Owen Tudor. Okay. Uh, and wrote The Queen and the Welshman in Iambic Pentameter. Well, la-dee-da. Um, her play was well-received and eventually adapted as a theater 625 production um, in 1966. This was an anthology series on the BBC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, it was thought to be lost, actually. Ooh, lost uh, media. Huh? But it was uh, found uh, in 2010 uh, with the Library of Congress. They apparently <laughs> just had it. No one knew. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So she continued to write plays, but she also wrote screenplays herself or as a co-writer. So she, uh, for Disney, would write upcoming 70s films, Escape from the Dark, 
and Candle Shoes, which we'll talk about in part two, and also the 80s film The Watcher in the Woods and The Black Cauldron. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also one of the writers on the 1980s British stop-motion animated TV show of The Wind in the Willows. Oh. Um, and she co-wrote several episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. <laughs> Which is just very interesting. Like, what a career. You go from iambic pentameter to all that. That's breadth. Right? That's range. With that, we are going to end there. And we will see you in part two, where we go from 76 to 79. So, darling. Yes. What did you learn? The picture is incomplete. The decade is incomplete. Yes. But I think this really shows a studio that doesn't know what they want to do. (laughs) the fuck they want to do all of these decisions and the, the the selection of these films that we've actually seen really show people playing it safe uh trying to just make a lot of pictures as inoffensive and just like uh except somehow that's offensive nice. oh yeah yeah <laughs> In- inoffensive to their uh, uh, yes perception, despite how not universal that perception is, but but it's uh, an absolute conservatism, and I don't necessarily mean that in the political sphere, but in the no risks, yeah, no risks. What what would Walt do? Mm, that's actually too expensive. Do less than Walt would do, unless. We're doing a lost island where whales go to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Then we'll do all the money. Even with Witch Mountain, like, there is actually something interesting in there. there there's a risk being taken mm-hmm. there. You know, Witch Mountain, we talked about how, like, you know, in the 70s, they start to dabble into sci-fi. Escape to Witch Mountain is the start of that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, is, it is the first time they dabble in aliens mm-hmm. and superpowers and... Really, like, I feel like it's a completely different level of stakes, you know, because yes. this is present day. It's not set in 1907 with whales attack. Like, people are after children mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they will either kidnap these children or kill them. <laughs> Child death is on the table, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's like the first the first thing they really get into that's like, OK, this would actually it did well, probably because it actually appealed to a wider variety of an audience. Mm-hmm. I appreciate Escape to Witch Mountain much more than so many of these other things we've talked about, but it still doesn't do it for me. No, it's still not like a great thing. But I can absolutely see why it did for you at the age you first saw it. Yeah. I get that so much. I see, cannot imagine anyone being so affected by the biscuit eater. No. No. Like, never. Like seeing Witch Mountain when you're seven six mm-hmm. seven years old like that is that's like it, i think it's the same thing of like seeing et and like think about yeah the yeah. um like the cops going after the kids mm-hmm. it's kind of on that same thing for a kid or or like to, to keep it in studio it really prefigures flight of the navigator yes Flight of the Navigator was big for me as a kid. Flight of the Navigator is amazing. <laughs> I mean, that, not really. In the same way that <laughs> Escape from Witch Mountain, not really. But it's got a lot of high points that really stick with you when you are the right age. Well, I think for Flight of the Navigator, so much of like the design. Yes. And like, there's an aesthetic to it mm-hmm. that even though like a lot of it doesn't age well, because of time and then also because you're older and you have a different perspective. Like, there's still so much of it that you can appreciate about it. 
mm-hmm. and what they actually tried to do. Yeah, yeah. Because it was different. And it's, I think what's, it's just so bizarre that you have the freaking biscuit eater, and then two years later, <laughs> you bears get... The bears and I? The bears and I? And then yeah, two years later, you get things that actually start to seem like they're from the time frame. Yeah. In these five years, there's nothing that's like groundbreaking. There's nothing that's mm-hmm, like, whoa, mm-hmm. that's amazing. We're doing new things. Like... These movies we're talking about, they're up in theaters the same time as Jaws, as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mm -hmm. Three Days of the Condor. But even so, The Apple Dumpling Gang was the 10th highest grossing film of 1975. Mm -hmm. So, like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're doing something right. Uh, uh, Well... T- taking these I think minimally minimal risks, riskless like, uh, films. I haven't seen the Apple Dumpling Gang in years, but I think reason that was successful is because it is really good at comedy. Mm-hmm, like it really mm-hmm. goes for the comedy. Right. It's not these like I'm gonna die, so I'm gonna become religious and save my family. <laughs> I'm gonna go into the woods with a rooster and a bear and my best friend to find a goat herder. <laughs> Also, I bought this lion from a clown. <laughs> Were animals just really cheap in 1972? Was there a fire sale at the circus? I really think they were just pulling shit out of hats. Like, yep, okay, okay. And so with that, we are going to take a break. We're going to come back with some mail. Letters! back everybody hello once again it is time for letters and our first letter comes in from Kristen, who has four favorite movies from the 1970s that was the prompt you left us with if you will recall i i I do i do recall i do remember (laughs) because it makes sense and his favorite films from the 1970s are alien halloween the texas chainsaw massacre and rocky somehow the boxing one is the least violent of them all (laughs) Thanks, Kristen. Isaac wrote in, and their favorite movie from the 70s is also Alien. We should be keeping score. I'm going to do a checkbox here. Okay. Okay, we got got two for Alien. I already looked at them, so I think I know what movie's going to (laughs) win. Belafon wrote in to answer the prompt with our first comedy so far, Blazing Saddles. I actually, the one time I saw that movie, I hated it. And apparently I'm the only person in the world that had that opinion, but I really did not like it. Greatest fart jokes of all time. Uh, but Belafon also gave us some pictures of Gloria. Gloria! Gloria is a big, big girl. We've seen pictures of Gloria before, I think. Yeah, look at Gloria. She just got out of the groomers. Oh, look at that bandana. Yeah. Aww. Thank you, Belafon. Uh, John writes in... For, I believe, the first time. the first time from how... Nice to hear from you, John. Yeah. Uh, John's favorite movie from... Favorite film from the 70s is Haozu, which is a psychedelic horror comedy, he guesses. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's quite sure what it is, really. Uh, I'll trust. We should watch it. We should? Yes. Would I like it? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. You probably like parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, John. Thanks, John. 
Michael writes in with a roundup of some semi-recent prompt responses. Michael's favorite 1970s film is, of course, Star Wars. Favorite plays include Romeo and Juliet, The Nightingale, and The Monkey's Paw. Uh, Michael's favorite TV ad is everything from the Bionicle toy line in the nine years in which it existed. (laughs) (laughs) They were basically in the form of, like, lore dumps for the world of Bionicle. Uh, We get some uh, uh, pronunciation corrections, very appreciated, if we ever go back to talking about various common Rider series, (laughs) which we may only through the window of the letters segment. I'll keep those in mind. Thank you. Uh, We also get some feature topic suggestions. Thank you very much. And some pictures of uh, uh, Michael's cat, Misty, who was mentioned in, in Michael's last letter. Uh, very cute, very sweet. Unfortunately, we misunderstood, and, uh, uh, Misty left us back in the the 90s. But she looks like a very good cat. Yes. So thank you, and thank you for writing. So Kieran writes in, uh, with their favorite 70s movie, which is the 1979 Russian film Stalker, Mm -hmm. which I, like, just had this pop up, like, on (laughs) social media and posted about this and I was reading about it and looking at pictures of it and I was like, ooh, it visually looks cool. <laughs> so, but the basic plot of this is that uh, that a stalker is leading two men through an area of warped reality called the zone uh, and a whole lot of stuff happens. <laughs> so check it out. In most films, I would say that stuff happens. Not every film. Not every film. But most of them stuff happens. Not every film. Thanks, Kieran. Final Gamer writes in uh, with a few answers for for the recent uh, favorite martial artist prompt. Final Gamer wants to tell us about Nicola Adams from the UK, the first female boxer to become an Olympic champion, and also the first openly LGBT athlete to win a gold medal at the Olympics. That's what happens when you add women's boxing in 2012. Mm -hmm. You start to get women boxers winning gold medals. Yeah. Uh, In her path to Olympic gold, uh, Nicola Adams had to fight and defeat Mary Combe from India, the only person in the world to have won eight World Boxing Championship medals, six of them gold. So that... Not intimidating at all. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. If you were writing a boxing movie, you couldn't come up with, like, a a, a more formidable foe. Right. And Final Gamer's favorite 1970s film is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Ah. Ah. Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, Peter writes in, and favorite film of the 70s, can't just pick one, would either have to be Alien, so that's check three, or Godfather 2. It's the best Godfather. Okay, okay. It just is. It just is? Yes. Okay. I haven't seen it. (laughs) If you don't watch The Godfather, how can you understand you've got mail? They explain it to me. It's all I need to know. (laughs) Go into the mattresses. Father. That's all I got. That's all I... I don't have to know anything else about that. Cameron writes in, and his favorite uh, uh, 1970s film is also Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh. We're neck and neck, folks. Oshin writes in, thanks us for making such an entertaining podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and they are answering uh, the prompt as well, favorite movie, which is Godzilla versus Gigan. Though they do say that all of the... Uh, Shawa-era Godzilla movies are all classics. Well, of course they are. Yeah. Thank you for writing in, everyone. It seems like we have our winner of Alien. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, With Monty Python coming in second, 
but all a lot of uh, very strong contenders. I'm honestly surprised we didn't get more Star Wars. A little bit, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I totally, like, Alien, yes, great, but I'm just surprised that it mm-hmm. didn't come up mm-hmm. at least once more. It is interesting to go along with, you know, the topic of today's episode that a great many of these are also from the last few years of the 70s. Yeah, when we get to part two, <laughs> I, I think we'll see, and especially then into like the early 80s when we eventually get to that Disney episode. In another two or three years. Yes. Th- this is not a, a common <laughs> But I think it makes very much sense. Like some of the movies you start to see Disney try to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can't do the biscuit eater when you're trying to compete with Alien and Star <laughs> Wars. Mm-hmm, mm. Like, who going to go see that? But no you, one should. It's awful. But you can do the biscuit eater if, you know, uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show has only been off the air for three years by now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, thank you everyone for writing in. If yes. you would like to be like one of these fine people and also write in, you can send emails to History Honeys podcast at gmail.com we want to hear your show suggestions like michael any corrections also like michael (laughs) uh you can send us your pet pictures you can answer prompts you can apparently send us advertisement about reviewing books yeah we got on some publishers list got an email just today about a new constantly all the time (laughs) <laughs> Got an email just today about a new Jack the Ripper theory they want to do some promo for. <laughs> okay, that's more interesting than all the ones we get that are like, do you want to read about Nazis? We don't... Actually, no. We don't really do Nazis here. We've done Jack the Ripper twice by accident. Yes. That is fair. <laughs> Which is the only reason it's kind of like, well, <laughs> maybe it'd lead to a different story. But speaking of prompts, uh, for our next episode, I want to ask everybody, what is your favorite financial instrument? What? Yeah, we're having a hard swing in topics away from these pleasant and dull family films. Can can you give some examples of what? Are are you a big fan of uh, mutual funds or or maybe you're into T-bonds? How about some, some cap and trade stuff? What, what's your favorite financial instrument? So what I'm finding out is we're going to get no answers to this prompt. <laughs> maybe. Uh, if you, you know, don't want to answer the prompt because that's a weird-ass <laughs> prompt, darling, uh, you could instead use your time to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to our podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or even places you don't, but other people might, you know? Mix it up. That's true. You can also tell a friend. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Thank you all for, for joining us on this uh, uh, extra special double length uh, uh, return. Yes, part two will be coming. In, in two episodes. In two episodes. Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for, for hanging out and waiting for us to come out of our unplanned hiatus. It's just so nice outside, though. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, so we're glad to be back. Hope mm-hmm. you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Like I mentioned during the episode, I recently guested on the most recent episode of Breaking Mayberry, episode 87, Who Gave My Baby a Tribal Tat? (laughs) We had a great time (laughs) Uh, talking about, well, we were supposed to be talking about an episode that that raises questions about inequity in policing and and, uh, class structures in America, but we spent a lot of time talking about torturing kids, you know, for fun. (laughs) Like you do. 
That's going to be linked in the show notes as well, of course, but uh, uh, I do encourage people to check it out. During our recent hiatus, uh, my new show, Bizarre Podcast Dogs Must Die, that, that comes out every single Monday, uh, recapping episodes of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, is, is growing long and strong. We are now about midway through Stardust Crusaders, and uh, it's something I'm very proud of, having a lot of fun with, and encourage everyone to check out, because it's, it's, really, it's really come into its own over the last few months, and I, I'm very excited to... Uh, to get more people checking it out. Yeah. Do you have anything you would like to promote, dear? No. Okay. Well, one more thing I want to promote okay. is I want people to watch Mobile Suit Gundam Hathaway. Because <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's really good. One of our bonus episodes that went up in the feed uh, uh, recently was a, a primer of things you might need, you might want to know before you watch it. It's completely un <laughs> unimportant, actually. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the movie's way more accessible than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, you can get by without... You did a very good job. Thank you. But yes, you can get by without it. <laughs> if you don't have the time. Yeah. As, as I recall, when you watched it, you said, yeah, I followed along pretty well. And I don't remember a thing you said. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered a few things. So that bonus episode was not only unnecessary, it was also ineffective. <laughs> Trying to not be unconscious while we were watching the movie. I was very tired. I had just gotten home from helping a friend move for a few hours. I was very tired. So go watch it. It is, it is a political spy thriller that happens to have some very cool robots in it. In yes. certain parts. Yes. Not a lot. No. But when they're there, oh, boy, oh baby. Oh baby. Oh baby. Oh baby. So with that, we will see you next time. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.